You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Nikita, Brendan, Kruger, M.D., Torso, Bigbeard, Schmarls, Josiah, Jack, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Lost Again, The Navigator, Axios, Pinches, The Knight of Dampier, Wit, Pablo, Willie P., Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And, of course, our quartermasters, James, Hunter, and Birdsong. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we discussed events in London following the arrival of William Phipps and his massive haul of Spanish silver. We discussed the founding of the Bank of England and the groundwork being laid for what they were calling the Spanish Expedition, a voyage that would bring William Dampier and Henry Every together. And I told you that today we were going to continue that story. And we were. That was the plan, but we aren't. Because while William Dampier and Henry Avery and a host of reputable sailors and less reputable scallywags were preparing for their voyage, well, the very final touches were being put on the Charles II, spring 1692. The French attacked. This is episode 196, For Ufibla. I keep telling you that we're going to catch up with the Nine Years' War on the continent, and I keep not doing it. But really, we do need to take a minute and pull back to look at the war as a whole so far. Let's start with the basics here. The Nine Years' War was almost exclusively about checking French power in Europe. France, in the early 1690s, was ascendant. Louis XIV was the Sun King, and it was becoming increasingly clear that his expansionist policies had to be stopped. If they failed to do so, there would be no balance of power left in the European world. The scales would all be tipped in France's favor. 
almost everyone was against France here. The Holy Roman Empire was the cornerstone of the alliance against France. Now, the Holy Roman Empire was made up of a host of relatively independent principalities and duchies and smaller states in Germany and Italy and Central and Southern Europe. At the center of the empire, of course, was Austria, where the Habsburg ruling family was from, but here in 1692 there was another state in the empire that was rivaling Austria's power and shortly to rival her influence. That state was called Brandenburg-Prussia, and it was really this war that was going to bring them to the world stage. But beyond the Holy Roman Empire, the alliance against France included Spain and the Spanish Empire, Portugal, Savoy, Denmark, Sweden, which here in 1692 included modern-day Norway, and, of course, the Netherlands and England. If you were to look at a map of Europe circa 1692, you would see that France is surrounded. The question here is, if France was so outnumbered, why was this a nine-years' war? Why not a six-month war that left France in shambles? That's what it looks like should have happened. Well, there are a few very good reasons for that. First of all, France was miles ahead of the rest of Europe in terms of tactical warfare. Most of Europe was still stuck in the tactics used during the Thirty Years' War. More than that, they based their warfare around castles and siege craft. But if you recall the French Field Marshal Turin, you'll recall that his military philosophy was about mobility and speed and firepower. Turin would field legions of mounted dragoons that could claim any battlefield position they wanted to before the enemy even arrived. Those dragoons would hold that position until the larger body of the infantry and, at some point, the artillery showed up. This allowed the French to choose not only their placement on the battlefield, but also the battlefield itself. It was a huge advantage for any army. But then there's the sheer size of the French army. As always, France was outpacing all the rest of Europe in their birth rate and the survival to adulthood. Plus, you know, France is just big. They had more people than most of the other nations of Europe, and therefore they had more soldiers. At least more than any other individual army. But it wasn't just the army. Their navy was the largest in the world at the time. France produced their own timber and iron and copper, as well as flax, which they made into rope, and hemp was beginning to make an appearance there. They had everything they needed to build and supply and crew their ships there in France. So France had a big, well-armed navy and a huge, well-led army. They were able to capture and hold territory almost at will. But beyond the physical, military advantages that France had, they had a big political advantage as well. They had an absolute monarch. All decisions made in the war had to go through either King Louis or his war ministry. Then look at that list of nation-states that were allied against France. Think about all of the kings and senates and parliaments and councillors and prime ministers and war ministries and admiralties that all have to be consulted before any big moves take place. 
Now, I'm not fond of authoritarian military dictatorships. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that they're a bad thing, but you can't deny that they have a distinct military advantage. For example, on the Allied side, those allied against France in this war, there were generals who were bitter enemies. Men who'd fought against each other time and time again before they joined the League of Osberg. Men who had personal problems with each other. You know, commanders who had killed another commander's son or slept with their wife. There were a ton of personal and national animosities at play in the League. There's one general today who's going to lead one of the major battles we're going to mention, who was earlier in his career exiled from Prussia. He was hired by William III of Orange before the Glorious Revolution, and in this war he was chosen to have overall command of one of the fronts leading Prussian troops. These kind of problems were rampant in the Allied forces, but really it's not as bad as it might look at first glance. Despite the fact that there are armies and soldiers from all of those different nation-states, really, if we boil it down to brass tacks, there are only two men who sit at the very top in the League of Osberg. William III of England and the Netherlands, and Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor. Now, we've talked a great deal about England and the many challenges they faced going into this conflict, so we don't need to go into that again. Instead, I'd like to look briefly at the empire of Leopold I. Not just the Holy Roman Empire, though the larger Habsburg Empire. Austria, the home base of the Habsburg Empire, was... Well, they could only spare so many troops to fight on the front with France. Remember, we're only eight years removed from the Ottoman Empire knocking on the gates of Vienna here. The Franco-Ottoman alliance was still a thing, and of late the Ottomans had been making some threatening moves. A large number of Austrian troops had to guard the Eastern Front, so really it was Brandenburg-Prussia that sent the lion's share of troops to the French Front. Now, if you aren't familiar with Brandenburg-Prussia, or really just Prussia, it's Germany. Not exactly. There would be a ton of territorial changes over the years, but Prussia was the nucleus of what would become the German Empire. The noble family in charge of Prussia was the House of Hohenzollern. At the outset of the Nine Years' War, they were led by a man named Frederick, Grand Elector of Prussia. But by the end of the war, he would be known as King in Prussia. Still part of the Holy Roman Empire, but that's the impact that they're going to make in this war. And even if you've never heard of the Hohenzollerns, you've heard of the Hohenzollerns. That's the family that's going to produce Frederick the Great, the first Hohenzollern who's going to call himself King of Prussia, which was an important distinction. They're going to produce uh, Frederick William III, who's going to lead Prussia against the armies of Napoleon. Wilhelm I, who's going to forge the German Empire, and Wilhelm II, who's going to lead that empire into World War I and its death. The Hohenzollerns are one of the most important noble families from the 18th to the 20th century. They're going to be major players in everything. And this war is where the world really gets to know them. But beyond the borders of the Holy Roman Empire, Leopold I was also the 
de facto emperor of the Spanish Empire. Spain and Naples and the Spanish Netherlands and most of the rest of the world. The King of Spain, Charles II, was severely mentally and physically disabled, which left Spain and the Empire in the hands of officially a bunch of corrupt bureaucrats, but in reality a bunch of Austrian women who really didn't care for Spain very much. All through the war, Leopold was sending letters and ambassadors to his relatives in Spain, reminding them that, hey guys, we are at war here. It would be a really big help if you could get your act together and attack France, maybe pull some of the pressure off the front. But then there are those northern kingdoms, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and technically they did have a military alliance with the Holy Roman Empire. They were required to send troops, and they did so. But they did not care at all about the Rhineland. They were way more concerned with Poland and with Russia. This was going to lead in just a few years to the Great Northern War, but that's another story. The point is, though, they weren't invested in this fight. When they did send troops, they sent the bare minimum, and they weren't sending their best. So the League of Augsburg despite controlling most of Europe and a large percentage of the rest of the globe, they weren't as strong as they might look on paper. In 1692, France appeared to be winning. Now, I'm not going to delve into a blow-by-blow -blow of the early days of the war. It's not going to inform our story of pirates and piracy. For example, you don't need to know about Francois-Henri de Montmorency, the Duke of Luxembourg, and Marshal of France. He is a great general, but, you know, his name's not going to be on the test. But you do probably need to know that in 1690, Montmorency won the Battle of Fleurus. The Battle of Fleurus was the first major engagement, the first big set-piece battle of the war. It was a battle that everybody was aware was coming, but France had an ace up their sleeve. William III was tied down in Ireland at the time, but his Dutch troops were still there on the continent. However, when both sides were dancing around the Rhineland, looking for the right time to engage, everyone's worst nightmare came true. The Ottoman Empire attacked a fortress on the Danube, way to the east, and Austria was forced to pull a significant part of their army away from the French lines. They sent them to defend against the Ottomans. And they had to do so quickly, as fast as possible, or risk invasion from behind. If they'd had time, the League of Augsburg could have reinforced the line, replaced those troops. But the Duc de Luxembourg knew this was going to happen, and that was when he sent in that initial force of dragoons to pin the Allied forces down before sending in the rest of his army to surround and crush them. It was a surprising and staggering defeat that shook the League of Augsburg to its core. And then, that defeat was compounded by the one-two punch of England losing two naval battles at Bantry Bay and Beachy Head. By the end of the fighting season of 1690, it looked like France might just win this thing. And they intended to do so in 1691. France was going to push their objectives on three different fronts and maybe force the Allies to come to the bargaining table. 
everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The first front was the Spanish Netherlands. France intended to, and eventually succeeded, in besieging and capturing the fortress city at Mons. The second front was in the Rhineland, just to the south, and while France did make a pretty big push into the Rhineland, they didn't really capture too much territory. It could have been the place where they broke the Allied line, but the Allied line held. However, it was down to the south where things finally turned around in the Allies' favor, at least a bit. There were three independent states that lay between the southern French provinces of Dauphine and Provence and the northern Italian provinces of Milan and Genoa. There was the Duchy of Savoy, the County of Nice, and the Principality of Piedmont. Now, the politics and diplomacy are complicated down here and tied to the Holy Roman Empire, but all three of those states were allied against a French incursion, if France invaded, they would defend. But they weren't bound by any agreement to attack the French. Those three states lay in the Alps, and if anyone was foolish enough to invade, they would be easy to defend, but they needed their troops at home. And when France did finally invade, they were pushed back down the mountain. They took some pretty heavy losses in the fighting, so many that King Louis offered them terms of surrender, not the whole League of Augsburg, but the counts and dukes that controlled that alpine region. Those terms were rejected, but nonetheless the fighting was more or less done. Now it's not like the French really had to offer those terms of surrender. They could have thrown more troops at the Alps and eventually taken Savoy and Piedmont, but King Louis had plans for those troops elsewhere. In Brittany, in northwest France, at the tip of that peninsula where the English Channel and the Bay of Biscay and the Atlantic Ocean all meet, at the port of Brest, an invasion force was being rallied. The purpose of that invasion force and the fleet which was to carry them away was simple, to break through the English fleet in the Channel and land an army on English soil capable of restoring James II to the throne. Their forces were to be personally commanded by none other than James himself, who was to act as the overall commander on both land and sea. And he did have a number of marshals of France appointed to serve underneath him to command individual armies once they arrived in England. But we don't need to worry ourselves about their names because none of them are going to make it to England. 
The naval forces in question, though, we do need to worry about. As overall commander, James Stewart is nothing to sneer at here. He had served with distinction as a captain and an admiral in two Anglo-Dutch wars, and then as the Lord High Admiral of England, he knew his business here. But the French fleet massing at Brest was large. More than fifty, probably closer to sixty, ships of the line, and a host of gunboats and fire ships and sloops to harry the enemy. It was such a large armada that it had to be split into three smaller units, commanded by their own individual admirals. The largest of these fleets was to be commanded by the Comte de Tourville, who we met back at the Battle of Beachy Head. That squadron was comprised mostly of French regular soldiers. The second largest squadron was made up mostly of soldiers from the British Isles, Jacobites from Scotland and England, but mostly it was what remained of the Irish Royal Army. And then the third and smallest squadron was led by yet another admiral that we've met before, François-Louis Comte de Chateau-Renault. That squadron was made up largely of irregulars, which we should read in this context as privateers and, in some cases, buccaneers. Most of those smaller craft, the sloops and gunboats intended to harry the English, most of those were concentrated in this last fleet. They were to do what buccaneers do best. The French had two other forces of note as well. There was a small squadron waiting at Rochefort who was to meet up with this larger group in a few weeks' time, but most notably was the much-vaunted Toulon fleet out of the Mediterranean, commanded by the Duc d'Estrée. That fleet, when they met up with the main body of the armada there at Brest, would add an additional twelve ships of the line. These are all commanders that we know already, from either the Battle of Beachy Head or the Battle of Bantry Bay. We've seen them fight the English in this very same theater of war before. The difference here, though, is that their fleets are much larger than they ever had been before. And the same goes for the English as well. The Earl of Orford, Edward Russell, was in command of the Channel Fleet yet again. Or rather, he was still in command of the Channel Fleet. After the disaster at Beachy Head fell largely on the shoulders of his commanding officer, Orford had the unenviable job of rebuilding the English Channel Fleet as fast as possible. But he was in luck here. Everything that we talked about last time, that windfall of cash that arrived in 1688, the founding of the Bank of England, all of that had finally begun to pay dividends. The English Royal Navy was bigger. They had more ships. Their ships were bigger, too, and they were outfitted with all of the very best state-of-the-art equipment. Orford had turned the Channel Fleet into a really impressive machine of war, a defensive wall that it would be difficult for France to break. However, the Comte de Tourville had a plan here. It was supposed to go something kind of like this. The Toulon Fleet, under Duc d'Estrée in the Mediterranean, was to sail around the Iberian Peninsula, through the Strait of Gibraltar, and up the coast of Portugal to the French port at Rochefort. Now this was going to be a dicey move. Spain and Portugal were at war with France, and that was a lot of Iberian coastline they were going to have to sail past. But if anyone could do it, the Duc d'Estrée was the man for the job. 
Once the Toulon fleet arrived at Rochefort, they were to pick up a squadron of Biscayner privateers and a few additional ships of the line. Then that force would sail on to Brest, where they would take up a position in the vanguard. Shortly after arriving at Brest, the Toulon fleet, backed up by the Rochefort Biscayners, would sail up to the mouth of the channel, and there they would hold that position. They would stand in a defensive posture. Meanwhile, the fleet at Brest would load up all of their thousands of soldiers on their fifty or sixty ships of the line. Now this was the really scary part. A maneuver like that takes time, and in doing so leaves the ships vulnerable. The English were definitely going to notice when the French began loading up thousands of soldiers onto an armada, and once they did they would take the opportunity to either move on the Brest fleet immediately, or take up the best possible positions in the channel. That's what the Toulon squadron was there for. They were to guard the fleet at Brest, or, if need be, to engage the English to worry their plans to take those superior positions. Then, once all of the invasion force was loaded up on their ships of the line, the Toulon fleet would sail out in front. They would open fire on the English in a traditional ship-of-the-line engagement. Now, the French would be outnumbered here. The Toulon fleet was not as big as the Channel fleet. They did have the privateers under Chateau Renal and those Biscayners from Rochefort, but still not enough to defeat the English. However, while the English and the Toulon fleet were doing battle, James Stewart and the Comte de Treville would have free reign to land the largest invasion force on English soil ever. This invasion, had it succeeded, would have made real history here. It's the kind of thing that the French have been dreaming about and contemplating for millennia. Every time England and France went to war since... since before England and France existed, there have been plans to land an invasion force on England from France. When Napoleon Bonaparte arrived victorious from his Italian campaign, he was ordered to try this himself, but he took one look at it and decided it just could not be done. In 1759, during the Seven Years' War, France tried again to land an army on English soil, but they were pushed back. I mean, Nazi Germany couldn't pull it off, and they had the biggest air force in the world. The last commander to really pull it off was, with the exception of a few smaller forces, but to pull it off at scale was William the Conqueror. This planned invasion in 1692 could have changed the face of English history forever. But, of course, it's not going to. This isn't going to work either. Things began to go wrong immediately. The Toulon fleet never even made it out of the Mediterranean. The Duc d'Estrée was intercepted by an English squadron who engaged them in an indecisive battle. Indecisive, sure, but the French still had to pull back to refit and repair their vessels. The Toulon fleet was out of the fight before fighting even began. And the Rochefort squadron that the Duc d'Estrée was supposed to pick up on his way to Brest, they never got picked up. They just sat around, waiting for d'Estrée to arrive. Eventually, when they realized nobody was coming for them, they did take the initiative and head off to Brest on their own. But that was a delay of weeks. This was a... 
I mean, before the fleet even departed their port at Brest, this was a disaster. All of their careful planning was for nothing now. And if Admiral Tourville had had a choice in the matter, I imagine he would have scotched the whole operation. But Tourville did not have a choice. His orders, direct from King Louis XIV, were to engage the English regardless of their strength or situation. He was ordered to join battle whether they were strong or weak. What Louis told Tourville was an ancient French military maxim, a sign of their bravery and elan, to fight whether they were for ou fible. An admirable sentiment, maybe, but foolish. The Allies did indeed notice Comte de Tourville loading thousands of soldiers onto ships of the line, and doing so very slowly, and there was no Toulon fleet in place to interrupt their countermeasures. Instead, naval forces from all around the Channel region had time to rally. Sir Ralph de Laval arrived at the rallying point first, followed the next day by Richard Carter. Then a large Dutch fleet arrived under Philips von Almond, in the company of yet another English fleet under John Ashby. Now you don't need to remember those names, but I do want you to realize that every single one of those admirals was bringing ten or fifteen or twenty ships with them. The admiral of the fleet, Edward Russell, brought somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty ships of the line when he arrived. When the entire Allied force was assembled, they had more than eighty tall ships, plus dozens of smaller craft for support. This was an overwhelming force they had assembled. It was large enough to dispatch every ship that France had originally intended to send against them. When Tourville finally did set sail, he had only 37 ships of the line in his command. There were others he could have brought with him, but he didn't have the manpower to crew them. He had been forced to incorporate many of those privateer crews onto his big ships just to get a reasonably sized fleet in place. When the Rochefort fleet arrived, and eventually they did, his full complement, including ships of the line and smaller support craft, was only fifty sail. The French fleet pushed into the channel, but early on they stuck close to the coast of France, which was a good thing. On the 19th of May at 6 a.m., Tourville spotted the first English sails. I can only imagine the apprehension he must have felt when this wall of sails materialized on the horizon. Apparently, James II told Tourville that many of those ships were sure to defect when they saw his royal English banner flying atop the mast. You know, they were secret Jacobites the whole time, but Tourville was not so naive. He must have known that he was very, very fible. The wind was blowing east and a bit to the north, pushing Tourville and the French fleet directly toward the English, but they were moving slowly. A full four hours passed before the two armadas were finally close enough to engage, and I, well, I think about the terror that your average French gunner must have felt in those four hours, the prayers that they must have said, knowing that they had no chance of victory against this giant force of English and Dutch vessels, but knowing that nonetheless they were going to fight. 
It was Admiral Russell that opened fire first, with a, a mighty broadside from dozens of ships of the line, an almost overwhelming show of force right at the outset. And to their credit, the French did reply in kind. They returned fire, volley for volley. The problem, though, is that because the French were so numerically overwhelmed, they were just unable to divert the ships necessary to guard their flanks. All of those smaller craft that belonged to the English and Dutch were able to dart in, to make a quick strike and dart away. They were too small and fast to hit with these large ships of the line. Now, those smaller craft were too weak to do much damage to those big French ships, but it was enough to nip at their heels. If the French did try to engage some of those smaller craft, they would have opened themselves up to a huge broadside from a wall of cannon on the English and Dutch side. This fighting went on uninterrupted for hours. And just to stay afloat, just to stay alive, the French had to throw everything they had into the battle. The Allied Armada, on the other hand, could rotate ships and crews in and out of the fight. They were doing so four hours on, four hours off, so the men were relatively well rested on the Allied side. But the French got no breaks at all. By early evening, it was becoming clear that they were flagging. They were unable to keep up any longer. Their shots just weren't coming as fast. It must have been a huge relief then when a heavy flog blanketed the water. It shrouded the battle. There was a blessed moment of respite for the French. They had a chance to catch their breath. But then, just as darkness was really beginning to fall, out of a fog so dense that the French couldn't properly see each other, dozens of ships materialized out of the fog. I mean, imagine the tension in that fog, listening and straining to hear or maybe to see what was out there, knowing that something had to be coming. And then to the starboard, a sudden storm of big guns, just flashes of red and orange illuminating the darkness of fog and smoke and falling night. And then to the larboard on the other side, enemy sails would break through right on top of you, bearing down on you. And that's when you realize that you are surrounded. As darkness fell in the midst of that fog, the Dutch armada had arrived and surrounded the entire French fleet. This could have easily turned into an absolute massacre. The destruction of the entire French fleet was not unimaginable here. But then, just as it seemed certain that defeat and probable death was moments away, the wind shifted. It started blowing back to the west and to the south, out of the channel. Maybe someone was listening to all of those French prayers. Tourville did not waste any time ordering the fleet to cut free and open sails to run as hard as possible for the port at La Hague. There was a pair of fortresses and a number of gun batteries under which they could hide from the English. This was the only hope that the French had, but even still, the Allied fleet already had the wind. By the time the French were well and truly moving away, they were being fired upon. Before they were able to properly escape, they were engaged in a running battle. Now, they did manage to outpace the Allied fleet, but not for long. Those few hours running from that battle 
were arguably the worst that the French had faced yet. They were exhausted, they were beyond exhausted, and their morale was already completely broken. They ran, they ran as hard as they could, but they could never quite escape. Twice over the next 48 hours, the French were caught in between squadrons of Allied troops in a barrage of crossfire that sank ships and killed hundreds of men. And there was no question of turning around and firing back. All they could do was continue to flee as fast as possible. Finally, though, most of the fleet did make it to La Hague. And it was there that the English, after one final battle, finally turned back. But twelve of their ships of the line had either been lost in battle or had been forced to be scuttled before even arriving there at this safe harbor. At least a dozen more were put out of commission once they arrived, some of them for good. This was a bad defeat. It was a serious blow to the French Navy. It was arguably a bigger blow to James II. The Navy had taken a lot of losses, but they had more ships from all around the world with which to replenish their fleet. But James would never get another chance at reclaiming his throne. The English, though, once they returned to London, were greeted as returning heroes. After all of the defeats that we've talked about today, this was a much-needed boon to Allied morale. They finally had a victory, a really big, undisputable victory to celebrate, to write about in all the papers and pamphlets to let everyone know that their fortunes had turned around. Something to stiffen the Allied back and give them hope for the war to come. This battle would mark something of a turning point in the Nine Years' War. Not a turning point in that the tide had turned, the Allies are not going to suddenly start sweeping up French armies everywhere they go, but it marked a turning point in that here in 1692 the war was really, really going to begin to heat up. As for our story, however, those crews who were in London preparing to depart on the Spanish expedition, well, they were as happy as anyone at the news of this Allied victory. Because the French had been dealt such a defeat, such a crushing blow, they knew that for a few short weeks, a window was open for their departure to leave the Channel and head across the Atlantic. Next time, for real, we're going to talk about Henry Every, William Dampier, and the outset of the Spanish Expedition. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has recommended this show. And everybody who has given us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tales from the
Tonight.